Good morning, church. My name is Ray Brandon, the pastor for preaching. And if you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. What I'm going to do this morning as we introduce Psalm 95, you recited it this morning. I want to read some scripture. Um, it is, it's, it's a rather lengthy portion of scripture, actually three portions of scripture. So I'm going to read um, for you two chapters in Hebrews. Um, and then I'm going to read a portion um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then a portion of scripture from James 4. So um, you may even want to um, just, you've got Hebrews there, Hebrews chapter 3. If you turn a couple of pages towards the back, um, what you will find, um, you will find James, um, James chapter 4. It's just going to be a few pages over to the right in your Bible. And then if you turn a couple of books over, you'll find 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as well. So we'll start in Hebrews, then 1 Corinthians, and then per- turn past Hebrews um, back to James. It's wonderful to see um, your warm, bright, sh- shining, smiling faces. It's a cold, wintry morning um, here in Michigan, but uh, I don't know if this is the four-wheel drive crowd, um, but uh, um, may God bless you for being here um, to to give a sacrifice of praise to worship God this morning. And so, even as we read, I pray that you will be attentive to the scriptures, um, that you will focus your attention on the scriptures. Um, All of these scriptures, um, they bear on Psalm 95. Um, So, let's um, read them. Um, There's there's much to accomplish this morning. Um, I have a short message. You'll say, you know, Ray, I, you know, We've heard that before. We've heard that before. Um, so we'll, we'll get into this. There's, there's Psalm 95 is just a wonderful, wonderful psalm. There's so much here, um, but we're going to look at just a few things in this psalm this morning. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, and note who's speaking this. Note who the scriptures attribute Psalm 95 to. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, that they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those, or for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as He said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through, now notice who the writer of Hebrews attributes Psalm 95 to. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken Of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and and of spirit and joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Amen. That's Hebrews 3 and 4. I know of no greater commentary on Psalm 95 than those two chapters. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, looking at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all baptized into Moses in cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. 
for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then turn over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is the word of the Lord. Now take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 95. We recited the psalm together, so we're going to jump right into Psalm 95 um, together. As we consider this, um, this passage in Psalm 95... I want you to consider this morning disappointment. Disappointment. Disappointment in life, maybe disappointment with God. Where does that kind of disappointment come from? Where does disappointment come from? Disappointment comes from a failure in a duty to obey God. So disappointment, not all disappointment, but this generalized disappointment in life and generalized disappointment in God comes from a failure to do your duty as a believer to obey God. And I put that as duty because it is our duty to obey God. We must obey what God's word says. It is our duty and God himself has empowered us to obey what God said. We studied this morning in, in the confession God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. Could Adam, after he sinned, could Adam said, well, I just didn't have the power to do it? The answer is no. Adam was a responsible, moral agent. And so I'm speaking to believers, those of you who are in Christ, that judicial power of sin is broken. You still live with corruption in your body until you pass through death and are glorified and sin is no more and we receive our resurrected bodies and live sinlessly forever. We still live within the corruption, but we live with the power of God. God has empowered us to be victorious over sin. Now, duty is not legalism. Some would accuse and say, right, um, you're being legalistic when you talk about duty. The Bible talks about duty. Duty is not legalism to say this is our duty to obey God in this way. We, we can turn duty into legalism if we think that we are doing these things in our own power to prove in our own strength that we are worthy. Jesus is worthy. Jesus has given us grace. Jesus has declared over us that we are righteous. Jesus has given us his righteousness. He has given us his spirit. We are in Christ. Um, we are sons in Christ. 
And so then as, as receiving these gifts from God, the gift of faith and, and receiving the grace that he gives to us, now we are empowered to live and to walk as we are in Christ. We have duty. What we find in Psalm 95 is that duty or habit is the pathway to rest. It's the pathway to rest. And I would say that it's the pathway to rest now in this life but also, as you look at Hebrews, and I would encourage you to read through Hebrews and reflect on Psalm 95, even around your tables um, this very week. There's so much there. It is, the, it is the pathway to rest, certainly eternally, but it's the pathway to rest even as you walk through life. I would ask you, what is the difference between stress, anxiety, and burnout? What would you say? How would you define those three terms? Oftentimes, I will hear, Pastor, I'm, I'm just so burned out. I'm, I'm, I'm so very, very burned out. Uh, you know, just, just burned out. I, you know, um, I, I, I don't know what, what, I'm going to pick something at random, so I'm not picking on any per, one person, just so you know. But like, you know, here, I'm just so burned out. I, I can't make the coffee you know, the third Sunday of, of every quarter, you know, the third Sunday, once a month, the third Sunday of every quarter or something like that, you know, because I'm so burned out, right? I, I can't serve because I'm burned out. I can't do this because I'm burned out. But we have to get at, like, what does that mean? What's, what is burnout? Well, we understand stress. There's good stress and there's bad stress. We all have stress in life. Let me ask you a question. It's a simple one. When you become a follower of Jesus, does Jesus promise all stress will go away? Come on, class. No, right? No. Now, sometimes we think we want, we desire, right? We want all of that to go away. We want heaven now. I would say that's actually a good desire God's placed in your heart to want heaven on earth. That's an eternal desire. But we do not have that now. And he makes no promise of that now. So we have stress. Stress right, leads to anxiety. So we have certain stressors, good stressors, sometimes bad stressors. You lose a loved one. That's a, that's a, that's a negative stressor. Right? You go on a run or a walk or do exercise. Those are good stressors. Right? We have good and bad stressors in our life. Good and bad stressors can produce anxiety. Anxiety is simply worry when the stressor is not there, right? It's worry when the stressor is not there. You know, there's certain things that I like to do, like I like to work out and stuff like that, but there's certain things when it comes to working out I don't like. And so I worry about it. Oh, I got to get that workout in. Oh, my goodness. And I worry about it. Well, there's also negative stressors. We worry about them. Jesus doesn't promise to take away our stress. Let me ask you this, class. Does he promise to take away our anxiety? Oh, a little harder question. You, you, let, me, let me ask it again. Somebody, somebody guess. I'll tell you if you're right or wrong. Right? Does he promise to take away our anxiety? Yes. Okay. You're a little slower on that answer. Yes. Cast all your care upon him. Who's him? Jesus, because what? He cares for you. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. You're going to live life without stress, 
And you're not going to live life without stress, but it is possible to live life without anxiety. But how do you live life without anxiety? You have to constantly be putting your trust in the sovereignty of God. You have to look to the word of God and obey the word of God. Otherwise, what happens? It leads to burnout. Now, most people, when they say they're burned out, they actually mean they're at a stage of anxiety that they're uncomfortable. Um, burnout is that, is that stage where you pull the covers up over your head and you don't get out of bed. You are physically, emotionally, relationally, like you just are not motivated. That is burnout. You just can't seem to move yourself to do anything. <clears throat> what we have oftentimes within the church and within Christianity is not burnout. It's idolatry. That's, that's often where people are at. And that's oftentimes when people say, I'm burned out. What it means is they have stress, good and bad in life. Sometimes the bad stress is because they're not walking as God has called them to. We, we all have that. We all sin, and there's consequences of sin. And that brings about stress. But even when you sin, do you have to live in anxiety? Come on now. All right, I, had a, I heard a good no. Let's do, that. Let's do that again. Even when you sin and you have anxiety over your sin, do you have to walk and live in that anxiety? Let's hear it. No, no because you are forgiven. You need to repent and believe the good news that your sins are forgiven and trust in him. You see, oftentimes what people mean by burnout is that they're serving another god. And other gods are slave masters. And they will work you to death because they tell you, you need to live up. You need to be driven. You, it's a constant cycle of proving yourself and proving your identity. And you have to do that out of fear and shame, which leads to what? More stress and more anxiety, and most definitely burnout. Right? Idolatry is the driving force of burnout, not just in society, but also in Christians' lives. The thing about idolatry, the Bible says, is that our hearts are deceived. The psalmist says that we can be deceived in our own hearts. So this is a psalm that really causes us to dig deep. And what you're going to see... Some key themes. How do we expose idolatry? Well, some key themes that expose idolatry in our, in our lives is complaining and praise. Notice what comes out of your lips. Um, also, duty and habits and rest. Those are some of the key themes here. Complaining and praise, duty or habits and rest. Now, one of the things that um, I want you to, to notice in this psalm is that um, that God is the one who gives rest, and he gives rest through obedience. The other, it's kind of a side, but I want you to notice this because I've been mentioning it, um, and I think it's very important um, as we build up families who build up God's church. That's the purpose of a family, is to build the people of God, that God is teaching us in this psalm in a particular way. It is cognitive. There are things about God. There's facts. There's revelation, there's truth that's given that's cognitive. But it calls us out into liturgy. Um, it is a habit as a means of knowing each other and knowing God himself 
And there's also discipline. Notice that the psalm ends, you know, and, and some people don't like these kinds of things. Oh man, the psalm ends, they shall not enter my rest. Oh, mean God. I don't like him. I want, I want it to be butterflies and roses at the end of the psalm. No, the discipline's good. That's the fear of the Lord. There was a whole generation that God tolerated. He had to move through. Why? Because their hearts were hard and they were disobedient. That discipline is a good thing, right? So even as you think about teaching your children, think about the science of learning that we learn from God's word. It's wisdom and learning from God's word. He teaches us intellectually or cognitively. He teaches us by habit or liturgy. He teaches us by punishment and reward. There's those three elements. We see them in the psalm. You'll see that. When you notice that, you'll see that through and through the scripture. Let's walk through the psalm and and look at what God has to teach us here um, about walking with him and learning to walk with him so that we will enter into rest now and forevermore. The three parts of the psalm here are worship God because he is a great God, verses 1 through 5. So you're going to see that worship God is is the theme through this. Worship God because he is the shepherd, verses 6 and 7. And then finally, worship God. Do not harden your heart, but live in God's ways and enter into rest. So there's a negative. Do not harden your heart, but obey. Obey God and enter into his rest. I would say do your duty. Do your Christian duty and enter into into his rest. So the context of this psalm, Psalm 89, um, we see that there is the close of book three. There's mourning because the people are what? They're in exile. Why are they in exile? Because they didn't obey, right? They are, we have two sets of wilderness people. The people that entered into the wilderness that didn't enter into the rest. The wilderness people that settled the land but didn't obey and were brought into exile. Now we have a new exodus. That's the Psalms. The Psalms are pointing towards this new exodus that ultimately point towards Jesus, who is the Savior, who we have exodus from our sins and enter into his promised rest. So we have Psalm 89 that mourn Israel's exile from the land. Psalm 90, we see the, the rescuer, Moses. He intercedes with the Lord um, in, God, in his anger. And there's, there's Psalm 91 that promises the Messiah, the one who's come. It promises victory. Psalm 92 asserts those truths of Psalm 1 and 2. And that Psalm 93 proclaims that Yahweh is on the throne forevermore. Psalm 94 calls on the saving God to do vengeance on his enemies. And Psalm 95 applies the experience of the wilderness generation to its audience. There's also this expectation that we see in the Psalm and we hear echoed in the Hebrews that God will do in the future what he has done in the past. So Psalm 95 cautions the people of today the church, to not sin like those who experienced the exodus from Egypt. We see that reiterated in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So Psalm 95, it opens and says, Worship God because he is 
the great God. Worship God because he is the great God. Look at verses um, 1 through 5. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The psalm begins with just it, this noise is literally the idea of a joyful clamor. Um, we, we almost have here, um, a um, as you see, there, there, there's three callings. Um, verse 1, verse 2, um, verse 6, this coming, come on, let's go to worship. And it begins with this call to worship. Um, we, we have that. We, we enter into the, the auditorium here, and it becomes a sanctuary because we're calling people into worship. Right? So, so here we, we see here, this is God helping us understand what we're to do in worship. That O come has to do with a, a traveler, one who's traveling. Right? And so it's, it's literally calling one another. That's why he, Hebrews, um, in Hebrews um, the, 3 and 4 um, that, that we read, it, it calls us in Hebrews um, 3 and 4 to, not, to, to exhort one another daily to encourage one another in worship. Um, it ends, um, chapter 4, verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter rest. It, this is not individualistic, but rather this is the sojourner and traveler saying, hey, let's, let's go to worship. Let's go to worship. So we see in the Bible that we have a responsibility. This is kind of a side note, but we see it here in the Psalm here three times. We see it in the Hebrews that we ought to exhort one another daily, that we ought to call people to worship daily. We see people that aren't in church, that aren't worshiping. What do we ought to do? Get on the phone, call them up, encourage them. You know, when worship starts and we're hanging out in the foyer, what do we do? Hey, it's time. Come on, let's get, get into worship. And it's a little noisy when that happens, right? But it's joyful because why? The auditorium is turning into a holy place, a sanctuary filled with the temple of God, God's people. And we're doing what here? Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The Hebrew writer, writer Paul in, in 1 Corinthians says this, this rock is who? It's Jesus, the rock of our salvation. And then he says, let us come into his presence, what? With thanksgiving. Notice what we're doing with our lips. We're extolling our joy. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation into his presence, As the church meets together, we are meeting in the presence with God. With thanksgiving, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It's telling us something to do with our lips to make a joyful noise. We're going to see here that twice it says to make a joyful noise. And then it says a song of praise, right? So that means there's a lot more joyful noisers than there are songers. So you have no excuses. Just make a noise. Even if it's a grunt, right? That's, that's, what we're, that's, that's what we're called to do, and we're to encourage. Let us together as sojourners. Why? Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God. That's why. We don't need any other reason than that. Psalmist could end here. He doesn't. Because the Lord is a great God. He is what? He is a great king above all gods. Psalmist here is saying, there is no other God. He is God and God alone. We could say in, the, in, in sort of a negative way or an inverse way that idolatry is foolish because there are no other gods. 
They're false gods. God is a great God. That's why we sing. And we sing because he is a God above all gods. And and the creation redemption theme flows through this particular passage. His hand, in his hand, are the depths of the earth. And the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Oh, we're coming to our God, the great God, who created everything. The psalmist is saying, um, from the depths of the sea. That's still, you know, we think we are so modern and so sophisticated and all that, but we still have not explored planet Earth. Come on, we've been here a while. And we still can't get to all the places in the sea. His creation is much like himself. Uh, It's nearly infinite. I don't know enough to say that it is infinite. (laughs) For God is the only one that has no beginning and no end. Uh, We are created and we are mortal creatures, but yet we are created without end. Is it possible his creation is the same way? All creation without end. I don't know. What he's saying is like, this is a glorious God that even the things that he has created that we can know, we cannot search the ends of even all the things that he has created. How great is the one who has created them? You create things. Anybody bake cookies? I love cookies. You can talk about cookies all day long, or maybe you can talk about a meal, but you know the meal is nothing compared to the one who has created it. Right? There's just this creation-creator distinction that when we begin to examine the things that we are able to know with our own mind and comprehend, we understand that there is something someone who is far greater that we cannot comprehend. And the only way that we know anything about who that is is if that one reveals himself to us, and that is what God does in Jesus Christ. And so that's why we encourage one another because it is our duty, because God's called us to it. And if that's the kind of creator and maker he is, we ought to worship him in the way that he has called us. Oh, come, verse verse 6. Worship God because he's the shepherd. He is the great God. But notice that the great God is the one that cares for you. He's the shepherd, verses 6 and 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Now, these, this word that's calling us now changes. It's oh, come, and it's this sojourner, gatherer, and that's what we're to do in worship. We are to gather one another to worship, right? It's not about getting yourself. If you're a Husband, if you're a father, you're responsible to gather your family to worship. But all of us are responsible to gather everyone to worship. If they don't come, they don't come, but call them. And we know Jesus you know, uses an illustration of a banquet, and he calls people to come. And who comes? No one. So what does he do? He gathers those who will. So gather those who will and call. But here, this calling changes, and it is a come into, it is a more personal understanding. And look what what the worshipers are doing. Come, let us worship. You see, the the first one were, come, let us sing. 
come into his presence with thanksgiving. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is recognizing who we are in worship. For he is our God. Now notice it's personal. He is what? He is our maker. He is our God. And we are who? We, we are. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. It's personal. We are his. Jesus, God says in Christ, you are mine. In the resurrection, he says, you are mine. For by faith are you saved through grace. It is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. You are his sheep. He's brought you into the fold. He is the one that cares for you. You are the people of his pasture. And so here, what we we hear echoed in Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians and in other places in Scripture, here is the middle of the psalm, and it says, today, today. Now, this is a psalm of David. We know that because the Hebrew writer says this is a psalm of David. This is also the inspired word of God. All the word of God is inspired. But notice that the the Hebrew writer particularly said this is the the, the spirit of God. um, David, when he writes this, this this idea of today is not just simply the day that he wrote it. it. It has a historical context, yes. But here it's in book four. And it's, it's the today in book four is for the people in exile. The today here, according to the writer of Hebrews, is this day, February 13, 2022. Today, if you hear his voice, then worship God in this way. Be aware that you can harden your heart. He says... Do not harden your hearts as in Meribah on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test, when they put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation. They are people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says, today if you hear his voice, if you hear the word of God today, you're going to do something. You're not going to harden your heart. This is perhaps one of the most prayed psalms of all the psalms. Um, Throughout history, history of the church, um, many have made this the morning psalm. And the reason is, is it acknowledges the great God, the God who has made everything, the God who is our shepherd and we are his people, and praying, God, today help me not to harden my heart. But to do what? How do we keep our heart from being hardened? Well, what happened in Meribah, in Massa? Meribah means striving or provocation. Massa means temptation or trial. What are they doing at Meribah and Massa? What happened um, in Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20? They record um, what Israel did. Israel came out of Egypt, right, miraculously, He saw all of these things like frogs up to your waist filling Egypt. But where the Israelites were, no frogs. I wonder if they walked, the frogs kind of parted. Right? I don't know. Like, 
That would have been fun. You know, I, I don't know how that, you know, hail that came down in certain places and not others. And all, all these miraculous, and, and those particular plagues were plagues of nature. And they were, who were they directed at? They were directed towards the gods of Egypt because the call was, let my people go that they might worship me. And so God was judging Pharaoh. He was judging the ones that they worshiped. He was judging idolatry. And he led them out to the Red Sea. And the Red Sea opened up and miraculously parted. Israel went through on dry land. Dry land. And then behind them, the waters closed in and closed around the army of Pharaoh. And all the army perished. They got on the other side. And Moses leads this rousing chorus of victory, and they move a couple more encampments. And what do the Israelites do? They complain. They grumble. They complain and they grumble. They don't have water. They're what? Disappointed. They're disappointed where God brought them, and they're disappointed with God. God, have you brought me all this way to leave me in the desert? Have you brought me all this way to simply destroy? Have, have you, and God, what does God say? God says, come on. Are you putting me to the test? Are you serious? That's what God says. Didn't you see all that I did? Why are you complaining? Why are you looking around? They said, oh, remember, you know, there, there's the other, these other times, too. They, you can go through and look at the grumbling and complaining. Said, oh, we remember we had it really good back in Egypt. Those were the good old days. Remember when we were slaving, making bricks and gathering straw? And that was wonderful. That was horrible. God's saying, I, yeah, it's rough. Do you trust me? He says, you've put me to the test. You've hardened your hearts because you're not really serving me. It begins with these complaints. He says, when your fathers put me to the test. Notice there, too, who he holds responsible. It is the Adams, the fathers, who put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Where did they go astray? Verse 10. They are people who go astray in their hearts. In their hearts. It begins with thinking, that is why I read for you um, from James, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. And you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, you idolatrous people. That's what he says. He says, You've, you, you want what you want. You want to serve other things, even though I've proven to you over and over that I am faithful. Trust me. And so what you do is you complain. Note this week what you complain about. It's, isn't it so easy? Doesn't it feel so good? to be negative. Well, we live in a broken world. And so note, 
Because what, is, what James says, too, in another place, what's on your lips comes out, it's what comes out of your heart. And is your heart a heart that's saying, with your lips, what? Let's sing to the Lord and make a joyful noise, the rock of our salvation. For he's good. The rock is, a, is it, we can build a good life on the rock of our salvation. Let's make a joyful noise to him, a song of praise. Yeah, things kind of stink right now. But we can trust God because he's faithful. Let's gather with God's people in worship. Why have people fallen away? People fall away because they put God to the test. That's what the Bible says. Because they want and do not have. Because they use their lips for other things than the praise of God. What habituates our heart? Is it not praise? So if praise habituates our hearts by the instruction of the word of God, if we are constantly negative, then what will our heart be? And where will our heart go? He says, therefore, I, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And see, what we get in the word of God is we get rest. Um, rest in the, it, when, when we come to worship, we obtain um, unity in Christ and, and ultimately his rest. And we are called, the psalmist calls us to do this. Think about worship in the Bible. We've put a number of scriptures together, and I'll close on this. You think about worship in the Bible. Um, you think about the garden. In, in, in the passage that we read, um, it talked about the law um, from, from Romans chapter 5, and the issue was the law from, um, from Adam to Moses, where there was no law. And we look at some of those progressions in Scripture. Romans 5 brings that up. But, but there's some other connections this morning that I'd like to make with this particular passage. And there's many different ways that we can go. But you think about worship through the Scriptures. What do you have in the Old Testament? What's the first form of worship in the Scriptures? Is it not obedience, right? And man fails in that. So what do you have? You have sacrifice. It's, it's, it is the pre-incarnate Christ who sacrifices and clothes man's nakedness, and promises a Savior. Right? That's, that's what you have. So you think about sacrifice in the, the New Testament, or the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so what do you have all the way up to tabernacle? Um, you have certain sacrifices. But even in the tabernacle, what do you have? What is the form of worship in the tabernacle? It is a form of silence. What are the musicians that play? They're only... Silver trumpets, beforehand, after, that's it. I don't know what tune they played, but that's what you had, before and after. What were the words that were said in the tabernacle? Not very many. The Day of Atonement, the priest is instructed to lay his hand on the scapegoat. There were words that were said, but there, there wasn't preaching. There wasn't singing. Now you move to the temple. And what do we have? We have some different things that are happening from tabernacle to temple. One of the things that you have is singing. Singing was work. Um, the Bible says that the Levites, um, one of their avod, it was the work. Avod is the word for work. The work of the Levites was singing. So singing is work. 
and his work worthy um, of, of God. And here we can see that. Bring your song. But they were sung at a particular time. Um, they, were, they, were singing, they were singing it multiple times. And one of the times that it was sung was it was sung before the altar of incense. And so the tabernacle and temple are five senses experience. And so the singing was going up as incense went up, as, as, as there was behind that the altar and, and the sacrifice was being transformed into smoke and the smoke was rising. So you think about the movement of worship in the Old Testament to the New Testament. Trick question, do we have sacrifices in church today? The answer is yes, we do. Well, let me show you what that is. Um, we, we actually, we, we have the Old Testament st structure around the sacrifices was to show that God's people were dependent upon the blood of, of another, a substitute, that they were to be unified in that and only the blood covered. Where, where are the priests in the, in the New Testament scriptures? Are you not the priests? Right? Is not the body of Christ? Do we not have that priestly function, the priesthood of all believers? We do. Is not Jesus Christ the once and for all sacrifice? But yet we still do have sacrifices. And we have something that is an amazing, amazing thing. Where is it that we see most deeply Christians, most tactilely Christians united together? Is it not physically in song? Think about what you're doing. Um, it is like the altar of incense and the sacrifice. As you sing, what are you using? Um, you are using your body, right? Your, your larynx, I don't know all the biological, physiological things, uh, physics of singing. But you're singing. Your, your song is, your mouth is moving the airwaves, right? It's a little creepy right now. So I'm actually touching you right now. Because the air that I'm moving with my voice or through these speakers is physically doing what? It's physically moving your eardrum. Right, so there's a connection. Now, we all sing together, and what are we doing? Right, it, song is a physical act of which all of these voices join together, inseparable, as one. That is your sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of praise. Um, it's a sacrifice of praise that does what? Well, it is transformed from your voice to one voice, unity in Christ as a sacrifice of praise to God. And it is that sacrifice that habituates you and transforms you, even as those Old Testament sacrifices covered sin and pictured that transformation. The church service begins with a call to worship of repentance and forgiveness and it ends with a sacrificial meal. And in, the be in, in between, it is filled with the sacrifice of praise to God, our Savior. And, and the word of God places this together in such a way that we do not harden our hearts. 
So examine your lives today. Are you discouraged? Are you discouraged with God? You don't have to live in that place. Do not harden your heart. But do what? Obey God. Cast all your anxiety on Him. Learn a new way of living. Do what God's Word says to do. Rather than complain. Because under complaining is fear and control. Give your fear to God and give your control to him. And what will you enter? You will enter his rest. Why? Because he's the great God and he is your shepherd. And he will lead you to rejoicing. And so, even so, as in these moments that we have, to pray, joyfully confess sin, to give praise and honor to God as we consider God and who he is in these moments before we come to the table of communion and we rejoice that we are reunited in Christ, um, we will also sing. So all of us together, let us bring our sacrifice of praise. Amen.